Oh, God, it's no wonder you can't sleep at night. But it is without impertinence that we remind you that if you don't come soon, we will all die. And so for Cynthia and the children, for all of us, we pray the prayer that closes your book, and we mean every word of it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And in the light of our soon-coming Savior, please make today's teaching clear for all our hearts and worshiping minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start right here at the outset with our title slide. Let's put it on the screen, please. This is a standalone teaching. Title of the teaching, A Mighty Throng of Women, A Second Look at Male Headship. There is a study guide, but it is not a fill-in-the-blank study guide. Instead, it is a study outline, and I'd like to ask our ushers right now, please, gentlemen and ladies, would you move through the congregation? I want to make sure that everyone who wishes to have today's study outline to receive it right now. Several of you came in with one worship bulletin. I would wish all three of you would get each, each of you receive the study guide. So hold your hand up as the ushers come up in the balcony. The same. And those of you who are watching on television right now, live streaming, we're delighted you've joined us. You're watching it on a delayed broadcast. We're glad you're here. We want you to have, I want you to have the same study outline. You're going to brood over this. You're going to cogitate over it. And so let me put it on the screen for you, our website, and you will see it there on the screen right now, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the standalone teaching, A Mighty Throng of Women, A Second Look at Male Headship. By the way, don't miss next Sabbath, a brand new series, Three Angels, One Warning, next Sabbath's teaching, Charismatic Confusion. I hope you'll join me in the journey into the rest of this season. But today's is a standalone teaching, and those of you watching, go to that website when it, where it says Study Guide. You click on, you receive that study guide. This is a holiday weekend. Many of our students are away. We are glad to have those of you who are here and the students who stayed by for this very long fall break holiday. All right, good. They're coming. Keep your hand up. I want to share with you a verse in Holy Scripture that I am going to be so presumptuous as to declare you have never seen before. You may have read it a hundred times before. I never saw it before, and I have, I have read through it again and again and again. But when I was reading the Psalms through in a new translation, sure enough, here is that verse. And in this season of great debate, and I'm not thinking about the presidential debate that was witnessed by between 60 and 70 million people this week, because let's be honest, everybody loves a good debate. But in this season of great debate over the role of women in ministry and mission for Christ, this text, heretofore unknown, for me, unknown to me, this text speaks volumes. Does it not? Check it out. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms, Psalm 68. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible, please. I want you to see this for yourself. What's the page number? It's page 
393 in the Pew Bible. Now, I'm going to be in the New International Version. Pew Bible is a New King James. Whatever translation you have on your iPhone, your iPad, or whatever it is you brought today, that's fine by me. Just, just go to the Word. That's what we do in this study time, this teaching time together. Psalm 68. This is the new 2011 NIV, and there is a difference. All right, this is, a, this is composed by the sweet singer of Israel, King David. Some familiar words in it. You, you might recognize them. But I'm not going to read the whole psalm through. Let me just pick it up in verse 4. Sing to God. Sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord. And then in the light of what I just shared with you a moment ago, there's, there's something pointed in the promise of verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. I love verse 6. God sets the lonely in families. Look at verse 7. When you, Lord, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, they're going toward the promised land. The earth shook. The heavens poured down rain. I love verse 9. Look at this. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in the promised land, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. And now comes the text that you have never seen before in your life, I predict. Let's put it up, please, on the screen. It's verse 11. Psalm 68, verse 11. The Lord announces the word, and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. You say, how come I never saw that before? Because like me, you've probably been reading the New King James Version or a similar translation. Here's how the New King James renders it. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. But that phrase, great was the company of those, those who proclaimed it, is a feminine plural participle. It's a Hebrew uh, verb basar. It literally reads, the women who proclaimed it. And that's why a handful of translations render, accurately render it accordingly. Let me, let me run them by you. The New American Standard Bible recognizes the most literal and perhaps the most English translation, the most, the most accurate English translation that we have. Let me put that on the screen. The Lord gives the command, the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Let's put the Tanakh version up. That's the Jewish English translation of their Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. The Lord gives a command, the women who bring the news are a great host. Here's the New Living Translation. The Lord announces victory, and throngs of women shout the happy news. Here's the Bible in basic English. The Lord gives the word, great is the number of the women who make it public. And one more time, let me put the NIV, the new, the 2011 rendition. The Lord announces the word, and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng a mighty throng of mothers and daughters, a mighty throng of marrieds and singles, a mighty throng of sisters and grandmothers. The women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. But guess what? The verb in this participle is also used in a very well-known prophecy about the Messiah. And I want you to see that for yourself. Isaiah, go ahead and look it up in your Bible. Isaiah 61, same word. Watch this, the Messiah same word, Isaiah 61. The moment you see Isaiah 61, one, you say, oh, Dwight, I knew that one. Of course you do. You know this well. Isaiah 61, verse 1. I hear your pages turning. All right. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Messiah is speaking here, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Do you recognize those words? Of course you do. You've heard them before. You remember the story. That the very words Jesus quoted on that Sabbath while worshiping in his hometown synagogue, back home for a few days. I'm telling you, in worship that morning, the air is electric with the buzz. All eyes are on there. This is our own Jesus who has come back. Every eye pinned on his back. Wild rumors for weeks now suggesting maybe he is the promised Messiah. I mean, can you believe what he has done? And they rehearse the events. So the leader of the synagogue very, very wisely invites the hometown boy to come forward. Jesus steps forward, and you remember the story here in Luke 4. Luke is the only one to record this moment. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So they hand him the scroll, and then he finds it. Unrolling, he chooses the place where it is written. And here come the words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, the words Jesus is quoting in Hebrew, he quotes the very word, this, this word from Isaiah 61.1, that he applies to himself, by the way. It's the very same word that, I, that, that Psalm 68, verse 11, applies to a mighty throng of women. In fact, to get it, let's put the, let's put the uh, split screen up so that you can see it. Isaiah 61, 1 again. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. It's on the uh, left side of your screen. Is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim, basar, to proclaim good tidings. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And of, uh, from Psalm 68, verse 11, the Lord announces the word, and the women who proclaim it, basar it, are a mighty throng. Or to put it another way, what the women do in Psalm 68, verse 11, is what the Messiah does in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The mighty throng of women shares the very same ministry as the Messiah, which, of course, the Gospels have been teaching for millennia. In fact, let me just run some familiar passages by you from the Gospels. This would be Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who were helping to support them out of their own means. Let's go to Matthew 27, verse 55, the NASB, New American. Many women followed Jesus from Galilee, while ministering to him. How about Mark chapter 15, verse 41, also the New American. When Jesus was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I've got to tell you, I was amazed to discover in reading Gilbert Belizikian's book that Pastor Esther gave me, Title of the book, Beyond Sex Roles, What the Bible Says About a Woman's Place in Church and Family. I was amazed to discover how central women were to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, let me put Bezikian's words on the screen here. The Gospels show that whenever possible, while remaining mindful of the cultural constraints of the day, Christ gave women special opportunities to fill a primary role in the main events of his redemptive ministry, such as his birth, miracles, outreach missions, death, and resurrection, end quote. And then Bilizikian 
sets out to list nine firsts in the ministry of Jesus that are woven through with women. Number one, he goes to Matthew, uh, Matthew's family tree of Jesus, Matthew 1, points out Tamar, and you know this, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, along with Mary, five women in normally an all-male family tree, five women inserted into that family tree. Four, Bazikian writes, the first, as the first unlikely beneficiaries of the retroactive effects of the salvation that their divine descendant made available to everyone who believes. All four, the first four are all traumatized in the story of sacred history. Unlikely beneficiaries of the great, 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 great grandson who would come to save them. So number one, inclusion right off the bat in the Gospels. Number two, the first news of the Incarnation was given to women, first to Mary and then her cousin Elizabeth. You know this. Number three, the first miracle. By the way, Jesus could have chosen a miracle just with a man. Most of His miracles were. But here He intentionally makes certain, Bazikian points out, that, it, that equally a woman and a man share in the launching of His messianic mission, the wedding of Cana. Number four, the first Samaritan convert the woman at the well. Number five, the first Gentile convert, the Syrophoenician mother. Number six, I thought this was interesting, the first resurrection teaching correlating the person of Jesus, His own resurrection from the dead, and the final resurrection that was first given, taught to, and grasped by a woman, Martha. And you remember she said, oh, I, I, I know, I understand that. Number seven, the first perception of the cross and an understanding of its atonement, its meaning, grasped by a woman, Martha's sister, Mary. Number eight, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And number nine, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Leading Bilizikian to, to write, and I'll put his words on the screen. And by the way, this is all in your study outline, so don't, you don't have to take a single note now. Just kind of brood with me, think with me through this teaching. Put uh, Bilizikian's words on the screen. This list of exceptional roles played by women in the crucial events of the life of Christ suggests that He made deliberate choices concerning the place of women in the economy of redemption. The message conveyed by those decisions is not to be found in mere chronological primacy, but rather in the fact that Jesus Himself gave women a foundational and prominently constitutional role in the history of redemption. And you stop and you, you, you just cogitate on that, and then one more sentence, a stunning, a stunning conclusion. Bilizikian writes, put it on the screen, any subsequent reduction of the conspicuous involvement of women in the community of redemption could be perpetrated only in violation of the will of its divine founder, end quote. That's pretty heavy. That is pretty heavy. What did we just read? Psalm 68, verse 11, the Lord announces the Word and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. Then what should we do with the male headship theory that some believe is the biblical reason why women are forbidden by God to share with men the spiritual teaching authority of the church that is conferred through ordination? based on three dominant New Testament passages, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, this position teaches that because Adam was created first, 
And because Eve fell first, there is a spiritual headship that God only bestows upon select men, enabling these men who meet the spiritual qualifications to exercise spiritual authority within the community of Christ, within the church. Advocates of this position believe Paul himself taught that God is ahead of Christ and Christ is ahead of man and man is ahead of woman. But that is a misreading of the text. God comes at the end of the text, not as it's normally read, God, Christ, man, woman. It goes Christ, man, woman, God. And the fact that God comes at the end is a huge sign. No hierarchical order is being established that would put God at the bottom. Something else is happening. Furthermore, advocates of this male headship teaching believe that Paul intended such an understanding of male headship to be the normative position for determining spiritual leadership in the church until the return of Christ. Now listen carefully. I used to believe the Bible taught this position. In fact, I preached it from this pulpit some years ago in a sermon entitled, The Atom Bomb. A-D-A-M bomb. But further study over a period of two years led me to the conviction that I had misunderstood the male headship model and that the Bible is clear that this model is not normative for the church of Christ and was never intended to be. And so I had to return to the same pulpit I had to return to this pulpit and candidly admit that I had been wrong and that I had come to the deepening conviction that the ministry of Christ Jesus, the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and the movement of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church are compelling evidences that God calls both men and women to share in the authoritative spiritual teaching ministry of His church, to share together the recognition of that calling through ordination to the gospel ministry. Reading Gilbert Bilizikian's book this past week, and I read the whole book through this week, it was just given to me, has reminded me of how compelling the strength of the Bible evidence is for such a conviction that I now share. But, however, for the sake of illustration, let's say the biblical evidence for male spiritual headship is strong. Let's say that it was clearly taught by Paul in his letters to the congregations and the leaders that he raised up. Question, is there a Bible principle, or in that building a hundred yards from us called the seminary, what they would call a hermeneutic, is there a Bible principle that would guide us as third millennials to a strong biblical response to the teaching of male headship? Answer, may I suggest that there is such an hermeneutic or principle and I'd like to put it on the screen before you right now. What would that principle be? A previous divine principle can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. Now, keep that on the screen in front of you. In other words, a principle of God in the past can be expanded, modified, shaped, even superseded by a practice of God in the present. So the hermeneutic would read, a previous divine principle can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. Consider these exhibits. Exhibit number one. Let's put it on the screen. We won't look these up, but you have them all in your study outline. 
ruminate over it beyond this uh, service. This is from Exodus 21. Familiar words. You know these words, Exodus 21, verses 23 through 24. But if there is serious inju injury, God is speaking through Moses. If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It is the principle of lex talionis, the law of retaliation, and clearly it is from God. But remember our hermeneutic. Put it on the screen again, please. A previous divine principle can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount to our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. But did he practice, this divine one, did he practice what he preached? Matthew chapter 26, Then they spit in Jesus' face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hits you? Clearly, a previous divine principle, lex talionis, was expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice, the non-retaliatory response of Jesus to his enemies. That's exhibit number one. Here comes exhibit number two. Put it on the screen, please. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. God speaking again through Moses to Israel. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation of his descent, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. God says, hey, listen, guys, don't forget that on the borders of the promised land, Balaam, Balaam seduced the Moabitess women to move into camp. 20,000 perished through sexual sin on the borders of Canaan. I don't, want ever, I don't want you to ever allow a Moabite into your worship, ever, ever, ever. Do you understand? And yet, lo and behold, not even within ten generations, but within seven generations, a young Moabitess widow named Ruth marries Boaz and becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Messiah herself. Mercy overruled justice. And the divine principle of Deuteronomy 23.3 was superseded by the divine practice of drawing Ruth into Jesus' family tree. What's that, uh, what's that hermeneutic again? A, a previous divine principle can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. Exhibit number three, please. Put it on the screen. Exodus 12, verse 21. Familiar words. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Keep reading. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Keep reading. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for, ordinance for you and your sons forever. Previous divine principle, you are to celebrate the Passover forever. Subsequent divine practice, you know this verse well, John 1, 20, 29. And the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happened? A previous divine principle, that would be celebrate the Passover forever, can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. That would be the divine Lamb of God coming and dying, our eternal sacrifice of deliverance. Exhibit four. And for me, 
This is a dramatic example of this very hermeneutic, this very principle becoming operational in the infant church. I don't want you to read this on the screen. Open your Bible to, to Acts chapter 15. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Acts chapter 15. We'll put the words on the screen, but read it out of your own Bible. Remember, if you get, got the study outline today, you'll have all of this for you for your further contemplation. Acts chapter 15. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. Clear and compelling example of a previous divine principle or command. All males in the community of faith are to be circumcised. No exceptions. And by the way, there was a sizable segment of the church, in the early church, that doggedly stuck to that previous divine principle, previous divine command. No yielding, no compromise. If God said it, we must do it. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Hit the pause button right there. Apparently, it's okay to be church and to be in sharp dispute and debate. Hallelujah. Some people get very uncomfortable with this notion that we struggle, we wrestle. How can we determine what is, what is appropriate? Divine revelation for the third millennium. It's okay to break out in sharp dispute and debate. What is critical, please hear me, what is critical in any dispute or debate however, is that we remain brothers and sisters to each other in the midst of the debate. I'm on the North, North American uh, Divisions Committee for the Theology of Ordination. I've been on it for, for uh, several months now. Just learned this, this last week, by the way, that I'm also on the General Conference's Theology of Ordination Committee that will be rendering a decision to recommend. Listen, in these study groups, there are convictions adamantly defended by people of very different persuasions. That's okay. Somehow God takes the debate and through the working of the Holy Spirit brings some sort of resolution as we will see here in Acts 15. All right, let's read verse 2 again. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Drop down to verse 4. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, Ha! Huh, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Hence the debate. Finally, Peter stands up, verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. Verse 9, He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. What's happening here? Peter's standing before the gathered delegates, and he's saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can we demand 
that the previous divine principle and command which differentiated Jews and Gentiles on the basis of circumcision, how can we demand that that previous principle still be in force when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them just like He was poured out on us? We've all received the same gift, Peter went on. How can we continue to insist that a previous divine principle and command effectively remain a wall between Jews and Gentiles? What is Peter doing? Brothers and sisters, Peter is arguing that a previous divine principle has been superseded by a subsequent divine practice, namely the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on uncircumcised Gentiles. How, Peter asks, can we continue to rigidly hold to a previous divine principle when clearly very present divine practice has essentially overridden that previous divine principle? He said, oh, come on, Dwight. Why are we talking about ancient circumcision? We're not. We're wondering about the ancient hierarchical male headship. James, the leader of the church, listens to Peter. He hears the debate. He listens to Paul and Barnabas. And finally he stands to his feet and he says, You know what? I do believe you are right. Watch this. This is what uh, verse 19. James gets up to speak. It is my judgment. Look at this, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so they send a letter to all the Gentile Christian churches with a divinely inspired, I believe, divinely inspired expansion of an ancient principle. The letter is uh, following verses 24 and on, but I want to pick it up in verse 27. Here's a portion of the letter, the last portion. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that. A very human debate, sharp dispute. When it's through, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Verse 29, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <laughs> it probably didn't go like that. It probably went farewell. Isn't that interesting, ladies and gentlemen? Brothers and sisters, is that not interesting? There is not a single word about circumcision in that, in that decision. Not a lengthy Bible study on why circumcision is no longer required. They simply abided by the hermeneutic. A previous divine principle or command can be superseded by a subsequent divine practice. The Holy Spirit got poured out on both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians... Evidence enough to them that God himself had changed his previous divine command by his very present divine practice, namely the outpouring of the Spirit. But since we're not concerned about circumcision that separated Jews and Gentiles in the church, but rather we are concerned about ecclesiastical male headship that separates men and women in the church, could it be, here's where I need you to just wrestle with me now, think, 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 could it be that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in these end times is just as much a sign today that the previous divine principle of spiritual authority residing only in male headship has been superseded by the subsequent divine practice of the Holy Spirit's gifting. 
Do we not see in women and men today the mighty evidence that the same cluster of Holy Spirit gifts is being poured out upon both men and women as elders and as pastors? Are we not witnesses today to the calling and gifting of both genders to the spiritual teaching authority of the gospel ministry? Then should we not recognize that calling and that gifting in the ordination of all spiritually qualified men and women who demonstrate such Holy Spirit filling, a previous divine principle can be expanded or even superseded by a subsequent divine practice. Circumcision and male headship have had their divine day in the sun, but it is a new day, for these are the last days. Could it be that God has already promised in these last days to supersede His previous divine principle with His subsequent divine outpouring? What did Peter cry out in that mighty day of Pentecost sermon? Just turn a few pages back. I want to end with this. Acts chapter 2. Just a few pages. Your Bible's open to Acts 15, so go back to Acts 2. What did Peter cry out? Listen to this. Acts chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Peter says, no, 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 no. What you're witnessing today is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he's quoting Joel 2, 28-32. And here comes a quotation. In the last days, and it's very interesting, Dr. Luke or Peter, one of them adds that because Joel does not say in the last days. They insert that under inspiration. That in itself allows this passage to have huge relevance for the community at the end of time. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now some suggest, listen, some suggest that the gift of prophecy here, prophesied, is not a gift symbolizing spiritual teaching authority. And so this end time cross-gender gifting of prophecy cannot be sufficient evidence to allow women to share in spiritual teaching authority. Those who make that point had better read 1 Corinthians 12, 28 very carefully. I'll put it on the screen for you. Paul is giving the hierarchy of the spiritual gifts. And here it is. And God has placed in the church, first of all, number one, Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Listen carefully. To suggest that the gift of prophecy does not come with spiritual authority commensurate to the authority residing in male headship, while the lower-ranked gift of teaching, it's number three, does, is utterly illogical and unbiblical. You cannot do that little sidestep. They say, well, it doesn't apply to us. It does apply. Joel 2's promise of the gift of prophecy for both women and men in the last days is the promise of the second most authoritative gift in the church ranked even higher than the gift of teaching. Verse 17, in the last days, for the church at the end of time, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Verse 18, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. 
Ladies and gentlemen and brothers and sisters, Joel 2 and Acts 2 are a divine prophecy that the day is coming, yea, is surely almost here, when the previous divine principle of ecclesiastical male headship will be superseded by the mighty and subsequent divine practice of the Holy Spirit's gifting of both genders with all the spiritual teaching authority that God can bestow. And then for the sake of salvation, for the sake of the salvation of the human race shall be brought to pass the saying. And the Lord announces the word and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng, a mighty throng of mothers and daughters, a mighty throng of marrieds and singles, a mighty throng of sisters and grandmothers, a mighty throng of women in the last days. If you would take out your Connect card, please. It's in your worship bulletin. It looks like this. I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond just tentatively here at first. I understand. But we can't... We, we can't share a teaching like this and just say, oh, well, okay. We have to, it has to make a difference for us. So on the front of the card, you're used to this, visitors, guests, we are honored to have you. If you take this moment, <coughs> excuse me, if you would join us in this moment, share on the front of the card the demographic information that you're comfortable with. Make sure your email address, however, is, is legible because you may ask for some material in just a moment and we'd like to send that to you through cyberspace. Turn the card over. We call this my next step uh, side of the card. You see what, what, what is here? Here are three next steps that we might take. Box number one, I, my next step for today, I will pray for the promise of the Holy Spirit in Joel 2 and Acts 2 for my own life. Listen, it's, it doesn't matter what gender you are. We all are desperately in need of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I hope you join me in putting a check mark right there. You bet, Dwight. I'll join you in that. I will pray for that outpouring of the Spirit in my life. Box number two. I will affirm the women I know in their divine calling to minister for Christ. You know women. Of course you do. You work with them. You live with them. You're next door to them. I will affirm the women I know in their divine calling to minister for Christ. You're saying, well, Dwight, does, what does that mean? All women get called to be pastors? Nobody has said that. That's never been the case. All women are called to some sort of upfront ministry? Nobody's ever said that. I got a card from one of our, uh, this Connect card sent to me between services, and she wondered, listen, Dwight, what are you saying about the ministry of motherhood? I mean, please, if mothers disappear, the human race is gone. Spot on, lady, spot on. Of course you have a ministry as a mother, but you exercise that ministry on behalf of the Lord Jesus, that's what you do. Number two, can, can, that second box, I will affirm the women I know in their divine calling to minister for Christ. You know, you have women in the workplace where you work and you're a man, and sometimes the word has not gotten through yet to you, that you are to treat that partner in ministry and mission and in work with all the respect you treat anybody else. Sometimes men can be a bit caustic and a bit hard on their female partners in whatever the enterprise. 
No, I want to affirm the women I know in their divine calling to minister for Christ because wherever Christ has put you, lady, wherever Christ has put you, you minister for Him. If He's put you in the home, you minister. If He puts you in the hospital, you minister. Minister for Him. In the final box, I will intercede on behalf of our church leaders as they seek to follow God's Word and His will for women in ministry. I'm putting a check mark. I'm putting a check mark on all three. Why? Because our leaders need the wisdom. The Holy Spirit of Acts 15 needs to guide the church today. I believe that the time will come when the church leaders will say it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, and a decision will be made. We need to be praying, praying, praying. Don't criticize. Don't judge. Just pray. Intercede. Join me in putting the check mark on that third box. And you're saying, Dwight, you know, I'm a woman, and I'm not a pastor, and I'm never going to be, and I'm not an evangelist, so don't even think of me in that terms, but I really would like a ministry in this church. I want to draw your attention to the second box. There's a little, uh, the second big box, and inside it, the little box that says, I'd like to serve on the prayer ministry team. Today, when you put a check mark there, we're going to send you. If you put a check mark there, we will send you an email. Twelve ministries are listed. You may pick the ministry you wish. Prayer ministry will be listed among them. But you choose a ministry. A mighty throng of women will be energized by the kingdom of heaven to proclaim God's mission wherever He calls you. Put a check mark there. We'll find a ministry. You pick the ministry, and you'll be as happy as you can be in partnership with the Messiah, serving the Messiah, just as women did in the beginning. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Put a check mark there. Our ushers are coming your way in just a moment, but I'd like to pray first that God would anoint these decisions, these next steps, and that God would make this worshiping congregation a force through its prayers in the community of faith you and I love. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you for the teaching of Holy Scripture. Thank you, we, thank you for the reality that we can stand on a very strong, thus saith the Lord. Thank you for the evidence in Acts 15 that the Holy Spirit never quits working. Here we are, not the church in the beginning, but the church at the ending. Oh God, send down that mighty, that same mighty Spirit to possess this process that your will might be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And for everyone who has chosen to affirm the women in, in their circles, Honor that choice. For everyone who will pray for the outpouring of the Spirit, honor that. And for all who are saying, I will pray for the leaders of this church, honor and hear our prayers. Raise up this mighty throng for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Living as you and I are in this time when the dark night is rising, I believe it's absolutely critical that we prepare ourselves for what's yet to come. That's why I'm excited about this little book. Uh, here, you can see it. On the Edge of Time, Preparing for the Crisis Ahead. This is a short condensation of that apocalyptic classic, The Great Controversy. And I'd love to send this to you. No charge. Even the phone call is free. So jot this number down. It's easy to remember. Here's the number, 877. That's all you have to remember. 877 plus two words, His Will. 877, His Will. Our friendly operators are standing by to receive your order. No cost to you. I'm happy to send you this gift copy of a book that will stir your mind and your heart, I believe, to the core. You'll never regret reading the book for yourself. So please, call our toll-free number, 877-HIS-WILL. And until we meet again next time, God be with you.